Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard flight 21TP4, a connecting flight from airports to theme parks. As a reminder, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, face coverings are required to be worn at all times, both over your mouth and nose. We ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat in the overhead compartments, as loose articles are not permitted on this ride. Please remain seated with your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Thank you and enjoy your ride. <laughs> Yes, I did just combine an airplane pre-takeoff announcement with a roller coaster boarding spiel. But now that I got that out of my system, welcome to my first ever attempt at a podcast episode. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Mueller, and I'm currently a fourth year student at The Ohio State University studying civil engineering, a decision that was impacted by my childhood dream for designing roller coasters. This semester, I decided to take an airport systems planning, design, and development class, which is quite different from my area of focus in structural engineering, but it's been a really great extension of my coursework, and it's really broadened some of my interests. We were assigned a term project that focuses on airport infrastructure and COVID-19 impacts, but it was very open-ended, which brings me to this. This podcast episode is my deliverable for the project. So, airports and theme parks. You might be thinking, okay, I guess they're both related to travel and tourism markets. But beyond that, they're actually a lot more similar than you might think. As a part of this project, I've had the opportunity to interview professionals from both the theme park industry and the aviation industry including Kevin Bodshog, who is a Director of Operations at Universal Orlando, and Scott Tamolo, who is a Director of Terminal Planning for CNS Companies. My airport class has taught me a lot about the aviation industry as a whole, and I also have a pretty good background on the theme park industry um, through some work experience, working as a ride operator at Six Flags Great America for a summer, and working in ride maintenance at Cedar Point for two summers as well as my involvement in theme park engineering group at The Ohio State University. Uh, I've had a great opportunity to travel to a few professional conferences, interact with industry professionals and students, make some connections there, and learn about the industry as a whole. So I bring all that background with me to this discussion, but I'm really excited to be able to share some of the insight from these experts in their respective industries. Unfortunately, due to Universal's policy, I was unable to record my interview with Kevin Bodchog, but I will do my best to summarize his key points. I look forward to sharing my own research findings as well. To narrow my scope, my discussion will be centered around the United States. When I'm discussing theme parks, and for the sake of this discussion, I will consider theme parks and amusement parks to be the same. My primary focus is centered around outdoor theme parks, which may include both regional or destination theme parks that are corporately or family owned, rather than family entertainment centers or other types of attractions. When I'm discussing airports, the focus will be on primary hub airports, such as small, medium, or large hubs with commercial service, rather than non-primary airports, like national, regional, or basic airports that mostly serve general aviation. 
with that, let's get started. Broadly speaking, one of the main goals of a theme park is to immerse you in an environment that convinces you that you're actually in a specific place, real or fictional, creating a false sense of place. Recently, airports have actually taken on a similar role, serving as a gateway to the local culture of the area they serve and creating a true sense of place, rather than the false sense of place that theme parks create. That's just a surface level similarity, but let's dive deeper on how airports and theme parks really are alike. The first major point of comparison I'd like to discuss is the guest experience. At a theme park, the guest experience is critical. After all, theme parks exist primarily to provide people with opportunities to experience things they, they can't anywhere else. When guests are happy, that makes them want to come back, which is very important for theme parks as they're not considered essential. Very few people are required to visit a theme park, so when someone is visiting, that's because they want to be there. It's then up to the theme park to deliver that essential guest experience and go above and beyond their expectations. And if you have such a great experience, you're going to want to go tell your friends about it, which leads to word of mouth advertising for the park. And you may even bring other friends and family with you the next time you visit. This is especially important for regional theme parks in remote locations or those that reside in an area that's not very close to a large hub airport, such as parks like Cedar Point or Silver Dollar City. Other than a world-class attraction lineup, what's really going to make you want to travel out of your way and visit from far is a positive guest experience account from someone you know or through social media and other online platforms. When looking at destination theme parks, especially the big ones such as Disney and Universal, you're going to see the guest experience level very high. They really strive to provide the above and beyond experience. Walt Disney World is dubbed as the most magical place on earth, and Disneyland the happiest place on earth. Their cast members are trained extensively to provide the happiest and most magical experiences to every guest they encounter. That's a lot to live up to, but the seamless processes and the intertwined transportation networks that Disney has developed, especially if you stay on property, are all designed to focus on a great guest experience. On the other hand, airports obviously have a need to serve their passengers, but in the past, there hasn't really been a huge focus on the experience beyond the essentials such as food, restrooms, and waiting areas, and there certainly has not been a huge emphasis on employees. More recently, there has been a shift from the focus on passengers to customers in an airport. This terminology then aims to include employees as well. In fact, there's a whole Airport Co Cooperative Research Program, or ACRP report, dedicated to improving the customer experience. In Chapter 4 of this report, they define a very specific airport customer classification, including domestic passengers, international passion passengers, non-passenger customers, families, the aged and aging, 
and customers with special needs. The report then continues to discuss the needs of each customer category, which is very beneficial for airport planners and owners to refer to and provide a great guest experience for as many individuals as possible. Now, I don't see things as clearly defined on the theme park side, and many regional parks don't quite hit the same level of exceptional guest experience as destination theme parks. However, there has certainly been an increasing trend to focus on the guest experience as a whole in both airports and in theme parks. So how exactly do guests interact with their environment? Through customer touch points, ACRP Report 157 on Improving the Customer Experience defines five distinct customer touchpoints in an airport terminal. The first is physical touchpoints, which includes visible, audible, tactile, and aromatic interactions guests have and notice with components of the airport terminal. The next customer touchpoint is subliminal, which may be similar to physical, but noticed only subconsciously, thereby contributing to an overall emotion or vibe the airport gives off. Human touchpoints involve interactions with other people, such as employees and other passengers. Procedural touchpoints involve interactions with different processing points and policies in an airport system, such as kiosks, airline baggage fees, airport lost and found, and more. Communications-related touchpoints involve interactions between the airport and the guest with overall sharing of information, including airport websites, announcements, signage, response to guest complaints, and more. After learning about these designations, honestly, in theme parks, customer touchpoints could be classified nearly the same as in airports. Physical touchpoints in theme parks have an emphasis on the sensations you feel, such as the forces like weightlessness or positive g-forces on a roller coaster or other attraction. Subliminal touchpoints are also especially important and relevant in attractions that tell a story. For example, the lighting or color in an environment is physical or visual, but often goes unnoticed because it's not the focal point. Similarly, some attractions or theme park lands actually pump in aromas to contribute to the overall vibe of the environment. Human interaction are also very prevalent given consistent large crowds and frequent interactions with employees at a theme park. Procedural touchpoints may involve security screening, ride boarding procedures, reservations, and virtual queuing systems. Communications-related touchpoints are nearly identical to airports, albeit with an added emphasis on a park's mobile app for up-to-date information and interactivity. Prior to the pandemic, theme parks have been pushing the edge of interactivity, immersion, and the utilization of technologies such as VR, virtual reality, and AR, augmented reality, to achieve these goals. Airport terminals have been pushing towards more modular, flexible design, allowing for the reutilization of existing space in the future. Terminal architecture has been trending towards vast, sweeping spans free of columns or obstructions, allowing for an open environment flooded with natural light. But have design trends such as these continued through the pandemic, and will they persist beyond? 
let's examine some more points of comparison between theme parks and airports and explore the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on them both. A great trend in recent years in both airports and theme parks has been a push towards inclusion. To better achieve this goal, theme parks have been seeking out certification to become certified autism centers through the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Education Standards. Parks such as Kennywood, Sesame Place Philadelphia, Dorney Park, and even the Mall of America have recently achieved this certification to better serve their guests and provide an elevated guest experience, especially for families of those with autism. It was great to learn that something very similar has been taking place in airport terminals, where sensory rooms are being provided at airports such as Pittsburgh International and a few others. Now, we haven't really seen an airport as a whole seeking to achieve a certified autism center designation. However, there have been restaurants and other vendors within airports that are designated certified autism centers. Now, another way that the theme park industry has been pushing inclusion is through their safety standards. I have served as a volunteer and been involved with ASTM F24, the Committee on Amusement Rides and Devices, and in the past two years or so, there's been a new developing task group on rider accessibility, which essentially advocates to make attractions more inclusive of guests with disabilities, utilizing specific inclusive verbiage rather than ruling out guests that may be fully capable of safely participating in an attraction through broad and exclusive language. This is just another way the theme park industry has been pushing towards inclusion, and it's great to see these trends continue. In fact, Knoebel's Amusement Resort, a family-owned theme park, just earned their Certified Autism Center designation this month. Unfortunately, however, not all these positive trends could continue during the pandemic. <laughs> When the coronavirus pandemic hit the United States, government shutdowns required that theme parks close their gates. However, airports largely had to remain operational. As such, the airport response was largely reactionary. As new information, procedures, policies, and protocols were released in this constantly evolving situation. Let's hear what Scott has to say about this initial reaction. For the first six months, it was like just reactionary. How do we, you know, make people make sure people are far apart and not touching anything and masks and even there were some differences in uh, sort of the global standard. I think the the WHO was saying uh, one meter, which is you know a little bit over three feet as far as the distance, whereas the CDC was saying you know six feet. And then uh, from an airport planning or design perspective, it was you know what does that mean? Is that from on center in a queue to on center in a queue, or does it mean six feet between stanchions just to have that extra buffer? And once some of the restrictions began to be lifted and some theme parks could begin to reopen, they had to deal with some of the ch same challenges that airports did. Now, the primary environment of a theme park being outside compared to the indoor nature of an airport terminal and an airplane does put theme parks at an advantage, 
But that doesn't mean that theme parks reopening was simple. In fact, California's theme parks are just now reopening, despite their typical year-round operation. And there are still some theme parks that have yet to open their gates since before the pandemic. While working at Cedar Point this summer, I had the opportunity to witness some of these safety precautions and procedures being developed and implemented prior to the park's opening. Just as Scott was mentioning with airport security lines, I saw managers measuring out and placing distancing markers in queues for attractions. Kevin noted that at Universal, they designed for there to be 11 feet of spacing in between parties in a queue to accommodate some of the complexities with the moving line corners and to simply be extra precautious. On rides at Cedar Point, there were also certain seats that were blocked off to allow for social distancing between parties while on the attractions themselves. There were a lot of changes that had to be made in order to operate safely in the current environment, and that does impact the guest experience as well. Though my job at Cedar Point this summer was on the night shift working in ride maintenance, rather than working with guests during the day, I still had the opportunity to visit the park as a guest and experience many of the procedures in place. And the overall experience was vastly different than that of the year prior. One of the key differences I noticed was that the lines seemed to be longer. And this may be counterintuitive because of capacity limitations and restrictions to allow for a lower guest density in the park. However, these capacity limits are not only on attendance, they also involve the rides, which means that there is a lower throughput and the lines then move slower. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather wait in a slightly longer line that moves faster than a shorter line that seems to not move at all. So that's one way that these COVID procedures have had an impact on the guest experience. Because of the reduced throughput capacity for attractions and the social distancing requirements and queues that hold less people, much less people, oftentimes the queues aren't big enough to hold the demand. That's something that Kevin brought up to me that I had not really fully considered um, when I spoke with him. But it makes sense, and that is why parks like Cedar Point implemented an access pass system where for their high popularity attractions, there are certain times during the day where they distribute access passes and you go and you basically receive a time to come back to the ride. And at that point, then you're allowed to enter the queue. And by doing so, they manage the amount of people that can physically wait in the queue at a certain time. On higher attendance days, this was certainly a necessary evil, but it definitely does add an extra inconvenience to the guest experience as a whole. A similar system was implemented by Universal that was used prior on certain attractions, such as the Jimmy Fallon ride, uh, but it's a virtual queuing system where you can secure your place in line through the park app with a limited capacity of how many people can enter said line and then roam about the park freely until your designated time slot to then return to the attraction and then wait in a reduced physical line. Another consideration during the pandemic is that in many cases, this required that guests make 
reservations in advance and kind of plan out their day through the access passes and, and virtual queuing systems rather than going wherever the wind blew them or whatever they felt like doing at the time. However, in certain cases, such as Disney, the amount of reservations required was actually reduced. Prior to COVID, you could essentially plan out most of your Disney trip almost six months or a year in advance through the extensive use of reservations and fast pass systems. However, during COVID, a lot of this was eliminated. And so that allowed guests to roam more freely and enjoy their day the way they wanted to. So the pandemic had a varying impact on the guest experience with this regard. In airports, the guest experience especially extends out onto the land side and how you arrive at an airport. COVID impacts everything. So, you know, oh, I well, normally I take the train, but I don't want to be on mass transit because I'm around everyone. So maybe I'll take an Uber. Well, that has, you know, or, or maybe I'll, well, if I go to the parking garage, there used to be a shuttle from the parking garage and now there's no shuttle because there aren't that many people. So I got to walk or whatever. Now, I have not personally flown since the start of the pandemic, uh, but I did have the opportunity to speak with one of my classmates who has, and she's she basically shared her experience about varying levels of mask wearing compliance um, at different airports throughout the country. Um, she also shared some concerns about social distancing markers and queues that didn't seem to actually be six feet away, uh, especially in points where you're turning in the queue. She mentioned that going through security screening with the TSA, as well as the bag drop in the check-in area and kiosks uh, were a bit difficult to distance, and they didn't necessarily have areas marked off um, to force distancing. And she didn't notice like dis disinfection between every use of self-service kiosk. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't frequent disinfection occurring, uh, but just one thing she mentioned. And also, she did note that the airport shuttles were still running. Um, this was at the Denver International Airport uh, to the airport, from the airport to the lodges and ski hills, uh, but they were running at half capacity. And so this could be a benefit that you get more space than you probably ever would have on one of these shuttles being crammed in with a bunch of people, um, obviously due to the distancing requirements. However, that also, that reduced capacity means you might have to wait a significant amount of time to board one of these shuttles and get to your destination. However, that was just one account and I've heard from a few other friends who have flown that they felt completely safe throughout the entire experience and didn't encounter any issues really with regards to mask compliance or social distancing or cleanliness. And their, their guest experience was largely unimpeded. From these accounts and my discussion with Kevin, it is apparent that two key factors to operate safely and successfully in a pandemic environment include enforcement and communication. Communication is very important, including prior to arrival, so that guests are familiar and knowledgeable about the safety precautions and procedures in place. This can be accomplished through the website, mobile app, and notification reminders. 
In the facility itself, additional signage, physical barriers, social distancing markers, and audio reminders were implemented to allow guests to follow the designated procedures. However, this is where enforcement comes in really handy. You can cover the ground with as many stickers as you want at the adequate distancing, but without reminder signage or announcements or employees walking around and enforcing distancing and masks, oftentimes those procedures may not be followed. One great way that Kevin mentioned to fuse enforcement and communication together is through Universal's policy of parking cars in the morning in every other spot. Now, this accomplishes two things. First, you don't have guests getting out of their cars right next to each other where social distancing is unavoidable and they likely aren't already wearing their masks. Number two, however, social distancing of cars seems excessive, but it sets the tone for the day that the park is serious about their safety procedures and that guests know what they're getting themselves into and what to look for and how to follow them. A great example of enforcement was at Cedar Point this summer. They had a designated position in every ride queue where an employee would walk around cleaning the handrails and simultaneously enforcing social distancing, making sure that all guests were standing on the appropriate social distancing markers. I would say that enforcement is a little bit easier in theme parks, considering almost all the employees work directly for that theme park. At an airport, however, many employees work for the vendors or the airlines that exist within the terminal or the airport itself. And therefore, it is harder to harmonize different procedures and enforcement rules. Enforcement seems to be a bit easier in theme parks due to the fact that they're privately owned and you're paying to go on their property. As a result, theme parks can have strict policies that enable them to kick anyone out who is non-compliant with their safety procedures. Now that doesn't mean you can just get away with doing whatever you want in an airport because they're typically publicly owned in the US. However, their rules are more governed by the law. Of course, many counties and states have their own COVID laws and mask mandates in place, uh, but that's a little more difficult to enforce than what the theme parks are dealing with, with their, their own set of rules. Going back to customer touch points for a minute, the communication and enforcement really are about enhancing the communication related customer touch points due to the changes in procedural customer touch points. This also involves human touch points, um, though they are desired to be minimized during the pandemic, and also relates to physical touch points with added physical barriers, masks, and hand sanitizing stations that guests interact with, all to come down to the subliminal touch point of guests feeling safe visiting a facility during this environment. Security is a top priority in theme parks and airports, but with the coronavirus pandemic, some changes have been made. Many theme parks have resorted to touchless screening by having guests bring everything with them through metal detectors rather than having bags physically examined. Another key change is the addition of health screening infrastructure, 
from required surveys online prior to visiting to temperature screening upon arrival. I have seen some parks use touchless forehead infra infrared thermometers, but one of the most unique forms of temperature screening I experienced was at both Cedar Point and Six Flags St. Louis. They had temperature screening tents where guests walked through continuously unless a fever was detected by the thermal imaging cameras that monitored guests passing through. This was a very efficient addition and did not add any hassle to the guest experience while still adding a level of safety protection. Some airports and airlines are using similar screening procedures, but it is not something that has been required on a federal level. The Fly Safe and Healthy Act of 2020 would have required TSA to conduct temperature screening and was introduced to Senate in September, but never passed. Now there are studies suggesting that touchless temperature checks may be ineffective, but they are still in use as an extra line of defense, though relatively unregulated. Other than distancing, masks, and physical barriers, the TSA security screening process has largely remained the same. However, the pandemic has certainly created an increased desire for enhanced airport screening procedures requiring less touch points and more efficient expedited processing. In the future, perhaps we will see an introduction to optional biometrics processing through the implementation of facial or optical scanning infrastructure. But I wouldn't see that being required in the near future in the US uh, due to individual privacy concerns. A big part of operating during the pandemic is about regaining consumer confidence in both industries. Safety and cleanliness have always been priorities but now the two are more interconnected than ever before. Guests want to see and know of extensive cleaning procedures to have confidence in their safety. In both theme parks and airports, this means actively demonstrating cleaning procedures through advertising on the website, signage within the facility, and of course, through frequent cleaning in front of guests. Sometimes this also includes leaving cleaning supplies visible. In theme parks, for example, this might take place at attractions so every guest sees that cleaning supplies are there and being used, even if the cleaning did not happen directly in front of the guests before they board. Many airports, including John Glenn Columbus International Airport, took this one step further and actively sought out GBAC star accreditation. From the Experience Columbus website, quote, the Global Biorisk Advisory Council Star Accreditation is the cleaning industry's only outbreak prevention, response, and recovery accreditation for facilities. This performance-based accreditation program offers third-party validation to help facilities demonstrate that they have the work practices, procedures, and protocols to prepare, respond, and recover from outbreaks and pandemics to instill confidence in customers, staff, and key stakeholders." End quote. Now, I haven't seen any theme parks that have sought out this accreditation, though some hotels and other assets of the hospitality industry have. This is just one further step towards regaining guest confidence, though not required, as the parks have been operating safely 
and more and more people are returning to theme parks during this pandemic. However, it's always great to see that these accreditation options do exist. Throughout the pandemic, there has been a massive push towards touchless technology, and it appears as though that will continue throughout and beyond the pandemic. Kevin had emphasized this in the theme park realm, especially as it relates to mobile ordering, cashless transactions, Apple Pay, the use of QR codes, and additional functionality through the park app. When speaking with Scott, he also discussed touchless technologies in the airport realm. Let's hear what he has to say. One of the things that's long been um, and, you know, some of the other places outside the U.S. are a little more advanced than we are in some of these sort of the technology side with, you know, all again, that the headlines are all about touchless technology and those types of things. And that's stuff that's been, you know, dreamt about for the last 10 to 15 years and really with the onslaught of like, you know, that smartphones and stuff. But I think that that is one thing. Um, there's always opportunity in some of these things, the airport startups or whatever of you know, delivery to your gate. So you're sort of hanging in your hold room and you order your food and it comes, you know, that stuff is interesting and fun, but it's kind of like, you know, what, I mean, is that going to stay? I don't know. I mean, right. If two years from now, restaurant or bar, as you know it, where you sit down and everyone crowds in, is that, you know, is that gone? And so that you got these enough people are vaccinated and this thing turns into more like the flu, people are vaccinated. And it goes back to a little bit of normalcy. Like, does that mean that stuff goes away or does that still, like, but then there's a convenience part of it, right? So there's a lot of unanswered questions. But even with the introduction of all this new technology, many of the tried and true methods will still stay the same, especially in airports. Um, I, I know we've previously talked about some of the technology stuff like touchless and those types of things. I, you know, that, that type of stuff was around. Um, and other places around the world probably implemented that a little bit more than in the U.S., but we were kind of dipping our feet in it. And I think the pandemic has been a catalyst to try to do some of those things sooner and faster. So I think fundamentally, you know, you'll still somehow arrive to the front gate of the terminal. You'll somehow go through a security process to get to your gate area. You'll get on a plane, a plane will fly, you'll arrive, and then you'll, you know, somehow you'll claim your bag and go out to the curbside. So I think those sort of fundamental steps will always kind of stay the same, but just sort of some of those pieces and the, you know, the lens of how people look at things will be a little bit different. When looking at guest flow, an airport has a fairly typical sequence, like Scott was just mentioning, through the transition from landside and arrival through ground transportation to the terminal and out to the airside and vice versa. Within a terminal building itself, the flow typically follows bringing one's bags into the check-in lobby and proceeding through security screening, then interacting with the concessions area and traversing through the concourse before arriving at your holding area by the gate and boarding the plane. Theme park guest flow might start off linearly by arriving and going to ticketing either beforehand or at the park then proceeding through security screening. But after that, it becomes more of a choose your own adventure. Sure, many people might choose to start with whatever's closest to the gate and make their way around the park from there. But other guests might have a specific attraction that they want to experience first. 
This is especially significant with new attractions or other hot ticket items. It is also safe to assume concessions areas will be more busy around common meal times and certain areas may be more busy around scheduled live events. Beyond that, however, it is anyone's guess where an individual will choose to go. They may even hop between separately ticketed theme parks through interpark gates, like through the Hogwarts Express, which connects Universal Studios Florida and Islands of Adventure. Without as much of a time crunch as airports, and if there's no reservations or anything comparable to a specific flight departure, it is difficult to predict where anyone may be at a certain time beyond the general trends I mentioned earlier. Additionally, in airports, guest flow typically follows two-way traffic patterns. However, there is an added difficulty of separating domestic versus international travelers when a concourse or terminal services both. The most prominent one-way section of an airport would either be passing into or out of secure areas. Pretty much everywhere else is one-way traffic. One interesting example that Kevin Bodshaw brought up was the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Orlando Resort. In the Hogsmeade area, it's your typical two-way traffic, but diagonally, on the other hand, is actually designed to be one-way pedestrian flow. I didn't even realize this the one time that I visited, so it must have just seemed natural, but it's really interesting to learn that it was designed as a primarily one-way pedestrian flow. From these examples, you can see the differences in guest behavior and flow between the different facilities. Now, when it comes to the pandemic, what would be really helpful is the ability to control where your guests are or are not. This is where virtual queuing comes in. It's been around for a while in theme parks and used especially at big parks like Universal and Disney in attractions such as the Jimmy Fallon ride. However, it's become much more widespread, especially during the pandemic, because of this ability to allow guests to check in and then disperse themselves appropriately, rather than bunch together in a queue line that is unable to accommodate social distancing at a large capacity. This is something I thought could come in really handy in an airport environment, but as previously mentioned, there's a pretty strict designated order of operation required and a much stricter time constraint here than in a theme park. As such, this hasn't been a widely adopted trend in airports, though it has sort of been implemented to an extent through mobile ordering and other touchless technology features. Here are a few more clips on what Scott has to say about touchless technology and virtual queuing in airports. I think there is a place for those types of things. I think there's just a lot of thinking about how it actually gets implemented. And oftentimes there are not sort of overnight monumental shifts. Um, oftentimes it's, you know, working with the stakeholders like an airline or a progressive airport or something and say, let's trial this a little bit. So like, we'll trial this on one checkpoint or TSA will say, let's, you know, trial this on, on one checkpoint with one airline and kind of, you know, do some, some lesson learn type thing. And I think that's just the reality of how these types of things usually get implemented at airports. So I, I think you'll see a lot of those trials happening and kind of seeing and sort of trying to work out the kinks, but it's a very complex issue, right? The concept of virtual queuing is great. Uh, if 
everything is sort of, you know, moving linearly, right? You have a gate and it has different flights and, you know, based on your flight time, you can say, it takes me this long to get to the airport and I can get in the virtual queue, but I don't need to be in the physical queue until just the right time, like a, like a Disney fast pass. I think that the big difference between like a Disney fast pass and virtual queuing at an airport is there's so many variables when it comes to an airport, you know, like delayed flights. So what happens if your flight is delayed a little bit, you know, what happens to that passenger, right? So the flight is delayed, but they've already started to, you know, get, take their train or their drive their car or whatever to the airport at an amusement park. The amusement park at large is kind of the holding area, right? They're really, is not a holding area, if you will, that's pre-security. In fact, terminals for the last 20 years have been designed so that the hold area is post-security, right? So that people can kind of sit in concessions and spend money. That brings me to my next point, revenue. Through the CARES Act, many airports receive significant funding to continue operating despite significant revenue drops, especially as many of the highest revenue categories for airports, including parking, landing fees, and concessions, are highly dependent on the number of passengers. For reference, according to the FAA, John Glenn Columbus International Airport received $31,471,589 and Orlando International Airport received $170,702,799 in CARES Act funding. I have not found much public information available about theme parks' receipt of CARES Act funding. However, based on the letters to Congress from IAPA, the International Association for Amusement Parks and Attractions, It appears that funding theme parks were eligible for, if any, was very insufficient to counteract the major revenue losses which occurred due to extended closures. Year-round parks like Disney have never experienced such long-term closures, and tens of thousands of employees were laid off, not to mention the additional thousands of seasonal workers at regional parks, whose anticipated jobs were significantly delayed. What CARES did for both their airports and airlines was really more on sort of keeping them alive and making sure bills were being paid. So for example, money to those airports so that they didn't have to lay off a ton of people, or it was helping with like rent reductions so that concessionaires who had no money because no passengers, like they could like pay their bills, those types of things. Or for airlines, traffic is way down, the revenue is way down, so they're gonna have to furlough, sort of weathering that storming and allowing people to keep their jobs and those types of things, as opposed to, oh yeah, now we can go build new terminals. But you know, the next, what we understand the next push from the administration is, which Democrats often do, is push for the infrastructure stuff, right? So separate from the CARES Act, separate from what was just passed recently, um, there, there's probably going to be more of a push to do sort of some huge infrastructure bill. Um, and if that happens, that that's more, you know, we're already, we're already talking to airports um, about, you know, what projects can we plan or design right now? Because oftentimes it's like, 
you know, here's this infrastructure bill. Um, let's put this towards shovel ready projects, right? Because if it's shovel ready, that means construction jobs and that's what make politi makes politicians happy, right? So we're consulting people right now to say, you know, what, what are your high priorities? What could you do? You know, assuming something's coming down the pipeline. So we're a little over a year now into the pandemic in the U.S., and it seems like air travel has increased significantly recently, especially around spring break time. But, of course, all the safety precautions still are in place with social distancing and whatnot. As airports are getting more crowded in the current environment, do you see any major changes happening to physical terminal spatial design in order to better accommodate a future pandemic or similar situation? Or do you think airports just have to focus on efficiency and enhancements operationally? I think now, you know, people are reflecting a little bit. It's hard to ever imagine a situation where you would design for the worst case scenario where everyone is six feet apart because that would, you know, double the size of your concourse or double the size of your, your terminal facility. And that, that's just not realistic. So I think... Um, People are thinking about um, more on, you know, you might call it resilience, but sort of a, a, a strategy of when, if and when these types of things happen, you know, what are the sort of level of priorities that are most important uh, to keep that facility running? And so I think that's what you're going to start to see in both planning and design. And then essentially you're going to be doing benefit cost analysis of, you know, what investment um, again, you know, sort of your list of priorities, what is the top of your list? Um, and then what is the bottom of your list? And then, you know, this is how much funding we have, and this is what we're going to do. And I, I think it, I still believe that if, you know, pandemic like this or some variation or uh, happens again, that would probably reduce travel again. Um, and so you would probably be prepared to implement some of those measures, but from a long, long-term design perspective, um, you know, again, you're, you're not going to really sort of build out your building more than what some of the industry standards are. It's important to note that there are specific level of service guidelines that have been in place for over 30 years in airport terminal design. And these are some of the industry standards that Scott was just mentioning. It can be seen how many of these are directly applicable to theme parks despite such widespread standards not existing in that industry. For instance, according to IATA, the International Air Transport Association, the boundary between level of service C and level of service D is when a queue overflows its designated area. As the degree of overflow from a queue or other reservoir increases, that overflow can block adjacent functions or circulation and cause these areas to have a lower level of service. Now, for reference, level of service C is the typical recommendation to provide good service at a reasonable cost for U.S. airports. According to Kevin, Universal typically designs their sizing based on the number of experiences per hour that guests can accomplish, which is a slightly different way of designing the size of a space, but 
the level of service guidelines in airports could easily be translated into theme parks. Prior to the pandemic, there was an interesting study conducted by University of Central Florida's Rosen College of Hospitality Management that drew some pretty interesting conclusions on crowding levels. Essentially, crowding in theme parks had the effect of increasing the perception of popularity of the park, and at times enhanced the experience as one of shared participation, rather than always having a negative impact on the guest experience. ACRP Report 55 on Passenger Level of Service and Spatial Planning in Airport Terminals reported similar findings that additional space per passenger was not found to enhance the passenger experience at an airport. Now, all of this was produced and studied prior to the pandemic, but moving forward, some of this could change. Kevin predicts that beyond the pandemic, people are still going to want additional space between them and strangers. And I would have to agree. Even just walking on campus past strangers, it, it seems unnatural to pass them closely. So I think there's been a slight psychological shift on comfort level with crowds. Scott brought up a great point too though, that we cannot simply double the size of airport terminals. And this is a similar story with theme parks. So, Perhaps some of the temporary pandemic infrastructure will remain, but I think technology will continue to be a major forcing factor to increase throughput and decrease crowding, and thus the need for additional space per guest, even if it is desired more than originally anticipated. And moving forward, the future's looking pretty bright. As COVID vaccine production and eligibility have ramped up significantly in the U.S., airports and theme parks alike have been serving as mass vaccination sites, utilizing their existing infrastructure to help bring an end to this pandemic. Some of these airports include Birmingham Shuttlesworth International Airport and Portland International Airport, and some of the theme parks include Disneyland, Six Flags America, and Canada's Wonderland. And as of now, about 25% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated already. With this, there have been some new development investments too. Universal recently announced that Epic Universe, a brand new theme park coming to Orlando, Florida, has resumed construction. Disney more recently announced that they are planning to build a brand new theme park in Paris. And they also announced an expansion for Disneyland. While no one quite knows what the future may hold, it is encouraging that these major players in the theme park industry are continuing and resuming to invest in their new developments. I'm certainly hopeful that there will be a pent-up demand that drives the theme park and aviation industries back into a steady state. In addition to theme parks, airports could soon see some major improvements as well. The new administration is pushing for a $2 trillion infrastructure bill. Let's hear from Scott on what kind of impacts that may have on airport infrastructure. There's no question that the, you know, the sustainability, the resilience, that type of lens is definitely something moving forward to keep an eye on. And I think that will continue at least through this administration. So projects that 
you, you know, not just getting, you know, five or 10 more gates, um, but creating those better experiences for those different sets of people, you know, those types of things, um, but also a, a climate lens as well. Me being a planner, you know, in some ways we kind of always think about those things, right? Because we don't, we don't necessarily just go out and say, let's build, build, build. Um, it's trying to understand what the demand is and sort of being financially responsible uh, economic, or uh, environmentally responsible when we talk about uh, infrastructure. So I think from that lens, it's sort of kind of continuing on what we've always done. You know, I, I, again, I would go back to um, sort of around the last financial crisis and around that time, um, because traffic was down, we were in recession, uh, you know, a lot of money at that point was kind of focused on the airfield enhancement and, and sort of, you know, safety enhancement programs. So how do you fix like hotspots on your, on your airfield and, you know, those types of things. And then as passenger traffic came back from, you know, around 2010 and through, you know, 2019, um, then all of a sudden there was that shift to, oh my goodness, like our terminal facilities are 30 and 40 years old and we have record high passengers. So how do we, you know, redevelop? And so if the pandemic did not hit, you know, I, I think that would have continued on for a while just because, not just because air travel was at all time high, but because, you know, again, a lot of those facilities, at least in the US, were 20, 30, 40 years old and it just didn't really, uh, match up with what the modern day demands of a facility would look like. It's obviously good timing uh, with this conversation because there has been some recent discussion with the new administration on infrastructure. There was, I think specifically, I think it was like 25 billion or so for airports in general, of which maybe 10 million of that was uh, earmarked for um, quote, airport terminal renovation grants. So, you know, I think, I think it remains to see what that means, but compared to some of the previous stuff where we was sort of just surviving, I think that is geared towards making improvements to infrastructure, creating jobs, those types of things. I mean, that's the first time in a while that there was money earmarked specifically for terminals. Cause typically if it's like through AIP or other FAA funding, that's more about capacity enhancement, safety enhancement, and not necessarily terminals um, because that's more seen as, as revenue generating opportunities for airports, airlines, concessionaires. So that's, I think that's a little bit new. It is a positive step. And I think just like I'd mentioned before, the one sort of thing that's different um, that is there will be a focus on uh, infrastructure resilience. Um, it's not just going out and building stuff, but it's, you know, whether that's pandemic related, whether that's climate related, those types of things. I think there will be a, a resilience or a green lens to all of this development. And that's not necessarily something that has happened before. Um, and not just from a environmental impact perspective, but also from you know, a financial perspective, and also from that social equity lens that we talked about again with not, it's not just about the passengers, right? It's about the passengers, the tenants, and then and even the airport employees. So I think those are the, some of the key differences from what we infrastructure packages we've seen in the past. Obviously, there's still a lot of uncertainties 
moving forward, but what should airport planners and designers be focusing on right now, despite all the unknown? With the vaccine and stuff coming now, I think, um, you know, all those, there's a lot of lessons learned, I think, on what has happened. Um, so I think there's sort of a, um, you know, you can look at some of the sort of near-term fixes that people just had to do because they had to do it. And then now, um, a year into it or more, and there is a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but I think uh, the longer-term kind of planning perspective is um, trying to be prepared for the next thing and what does that look like and knowing that you're not going to necessarily know exactly what it is, but be flexible. And that's, you know, financially, that's, you know, whatever, that's a uh, physical planning, you know, having an operational plan and, you know, those types of things. And obviously airports, um, you know, have emergency plans, you know, depending on where you are, there's, you know, emergency plans for seismic events or for, um, you know, bad weather or, or flooding or whatever, right? Power loss. Uh, but, you know, really the, the buzzword these days is sort of resilience. And that's, you know, a very broad sprinkling across many different areas. You know, you could easily see it a year or two from now where travel is almost back to normal domestically. Um, and then if we were back to normal, then, you know, there's a lot of issues with a lot of airports around the country as far as capacity. So I think, you know, right now is the time to be planning and thinking about that because oftentimes these design projects take, you know, three to five years from, you know, sort of concept to actually building something, right? Um, so I would just encourage, and we have been encouraging our clients to think about um, what recovery looks like. We don't have a crystal ball, but it's almost doing, you know, scenario planning of what is the two or three most likely scenarios and depending on which way it goes, just being able to be prepared for either one of those scenarios. As the infrastructure bill is a little murky, right now is the time to plan and maybe, you know, three to six months from now when that bill has been passed, then it's time to act. And hopefully things with the pandemic kind of continue to improve. Thank you so much to Scott from CNS Companies and Kevin from Universal Orlando for all your input. While we really don't know what the future may hold, as Kevin pointed out, a lot of the safety signage and markers are stickers, not paint. They're temporary infrastructure, which means hopefully they will go away and we will return to normalcy soon. For now, planners and engineers will need to continue to be flexible and reevaluate as the situation evolves. With all these similarities we've discussed between theme parks and airports, perhaps we will even see a merging of the two in the future. That's right, you heard it here first, theme parks in airports. Now that is a future I could look forward to. Alright, I may be getting ahead of myself and extrapolating a bit far here, but you get the idea. Thank you all for listening, I hope you enjoyed this discussion and maybe even learned something new about another industry. Stay safe, everyone, and go Bucks!